This week on Give Me Some Truth, Keith and Clint discuss M1, M2, and Clint's green thumb, or lack thereof. Welcome back to Give Me Some Truth. We're in the office, Keith. This is feeling we, good. We, we are in the office. You, you came in, you were very excited. Um, you know, d- for, for people listening at home, we're, we're kind of in and out of the office this week. I think we're easing into the office mm-hmm. life. But uh, you, are, you came in this morning raring to go. You had had your coffee. You were excited to be back. Well, it seems like once you get past Memorial Day, then it seems to me like you've got the summer. It's officially summer with a capital S. And then, you know, I'm excited to be back at work. I'm, I'm a man that likes to be around people about three to four days a week. Three, three to four <laughs> days a week. Anything more than that. And it gets a, it gets a little tough. When yeah. we discussed this, like I, I consider myself to be an omnivert. So I'm definitely not an extrovert and I'm, and my brother is an introvert, very, very much an introvert. And I'm just, I'm a little bit of that in between. I, I can, under, I can relate to that. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't mind people, but I'm happier when I'm not around <laughs> them. <laughs> That's good. That's um, good. we do, except uh, Keith loves his clients and we'll see them at any point, but yes, you know, yeah, that's yeah. true. Uh, one thing we have to talk about, uh, we have to make sure we get on the watering again now that we're back in the office because uh, we've got some new plants. If you haven't been into the office, if you're going to come in, and we're still doing remote meetings at this point for those who are interested in uh, those. And, and, you know, Clint, you did a great blog post kind of updating folks on, on transitioning back into the office here, and, and we're trying to do everything, you know, that co- coincides with our clients' needs and wants, so we're available either way. But Clint, in his off time, uh, put in a whole bunch of new plants in the office. It's, I feel like that's what everybody's done. They've yeah. either done that or they're uh, doing something with sourdough starter. Yeah, <laughs> and, and uh, uh, you know, fermenting. There's a lot of fermenting. <laughs> uh, on, on to more serious topics, uh, let's talk about inflation because uh, that's, <laughs> that's right after sourdough. I'm going to be honest, that's what's on everybody's mind right now. <laughs> Um, but, you know, and, and one of the things that we want to stress to our clients is that when we talk about these things here today, it's very different than the conversations we have with you one-on-one because, one, we're, we're trying to rile each other up. Uh, I think that's fair to say. Sure. But when we, we go into meetings with clients, we're more weighing and considering your outlook on inflation, our overall outlook, the, the general consensus from the market's outlook on inflation, and, you know, what's going to affect you because one of the things that people often think is that inflation is bad. But in some cases, you want you want a small amount of inflation, right? It's And primarily because the reverse of inflation is bad. So in other words, uh, if you think about it, first of all, from a, a definition of what inflation is, it's basically that prices tend to rise over time. And if prices are rising over time, there's we can discuss what the factors are of that price rise. But as we can see, a gallon of milk goes up by a little bit every year. And if you're sending your child to college, we all know that it goes up uh, a fair amount every single uh, a, year. A lot, yeah. College that. inflation has outpaced everything else. Um, but And healthcare inflation is another one that's outpaced everything else. Um, but the reason why you want that little bit of inflation is if I hold on to cash and it gets more valuable next year, there's no reason for me to put it at risk in any way, right? If I can just by 
parking it in my mattress have 2% more value in, in my cash, then there's no reason to, there's less reason to invest in the stock market. There's less reason for businesses to try to expand. There's less reason to, you know, uh, put money at risk in short. And so one of the reasons we try to have, and the Fed targets 2% inflation, that's the number they target, how well they do, you know, uh, Clint and I have different views on that, probably, but that's why they're targeting that two percent because they don't want people, I- investors, to be in a situation where they can take no risk and make money because that's going to be bad for the long-term health of the economy. That's right, and we were talking about deflation a little bit and setting up the conversation about inflation. Uh, you know, the most recent time when we saw deflation was right after the financial crisis of 2008-2009. And we saw deflation just in general uh, across prices. And so that delay of the purchase means that the consumption does not happen as quickly as we normally would because people might just say, hey, I'm I'm willing to wait and I'm just going to delay this purchase. One of the things that you could delay that you see all the time that isn't necessarily related to um, financial crises uh, it, it could be like the cost of television sets uh, has been a downward spiral yeah. for years and years. And you could delay your purchase to get more TV or uh, at, a liar, lo- at a lower price point just about every single year now. Uh, I'll also say this is one of the reasons why most uh, financial prof- professionals who, who know basic economic theory are skeptical of things like Bitcoin. because um, And this is where we're going to transition in talking about why inflation is bad because uh you know something like bitcoin right it increases the the goal of a lot of the people holding it is speculation right to get it to increase in value well why are they you know speculating on it well because they want it to become a currency right well what you need in a currency is deliberate controlled expectations of about its what it's going to be worth and so if it either goes and becomes worth a lot more in the future than it is right now that's bad or if it becomes worth a lot less in the future as in inflation that's also bad because businesses need to be able to start to plan and i think when we talk about inflation being bad uh where we're getting at is when it gets out of control not when it's at 2% or 2.5% versus the 2% target, but when all of a sudden it's at 8, 10, or in certain situations, even greater. And there are certain, you know, a lot of economic ink gets spilled at where is that inflation breaking point in an economy like the United States. I mean, I just read something with Nouriel Rabini, you know, who has been predicting the end times for 20 years now. and for every record, my er- least favorite economist. Yeah, he's and every once in a while gets it right, but he's saying, you know, something like, well, 4.5% four four inflation in the current economic environment could just grind everything to a halt, which seems, what's the word I'm looking for? Silly. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that, that comes up is where is that inflation breaking point for the economy? Where does inflation start to drag on economic growth? And why does inflation drag on economic growth? Yeah, and I think, and what are the things to that you have to use to control that inflation as well? So usually it's through um, the Federal Reserve and monetary policy action. So one example of that in the past was 
uh, in the 70s, we saw uh, inflation uh, go you know, pretty well out of hand at that point. Uh, and oftentimes you'll see the commodity prices are going haywire at the same time because there, there are high correlations between the two. So oil prices were going up. We had a lot of inflation and they had to bring it down. So uh, you know, one of the things that they have to do is sort of slow down that monetary supply and go to you know, a stronger dollar sort of situation. Uh, and that put the economy economy into recession, um, and that's common because the, the Fed will have to raise interest rates and soak up money essentially in the system. Uh, so you know, a lot of people have talked about, well, you know, if we go to this sort of modern monetary theory, uh, and we say that deficits don't matter and and government spending can basically be unchecked. Uh, that that might lead to a lot of inflation because essentially there'd just be a lot of dollars in the system. Uh, and so that's one theory. And, and I don't know, we're, we're kind of seeing that play out now. We're seeing extremely high deficits and that, that might yeah. happen. And, and so, you know, the 1970s were unique because um, a couple of things happen. And I think they identify what certain causes of I- inflation are. Uh, at, at a very base level, you know, one thing that is a, a cause of inflation is too much money in the system, right? You're printing and printing money. And one case, and I'm reading a book about the Warburgs who, who you know, dealt, dealt with this in the 1920s in Germany, is essentially you uh, uh, go in and you start printing money. And the reason the German government did that in the 1920s is they had this huge debt overhang because basically they got, they got the bill uh, for World War I. And that is a case, and, and you know people refer back to that, but the, the relationship of the debt in Germany to, to you know what their GDP was is so much higher than where we are now. I mean, they finally were able to pay off with all sorts of funny uh, tricks and, and so on that, that bill in like the 1990s, I think. Um, and you know, in a lot of ways, that treaty at Versailles, you know, extracted some very harsh concessions that people warned about. The other thing that happened in the 1970s and in, in, and, uh, in the 1920s is the price of a certain good went up. And in the case of the 1970s, it was oil, right? You had an oil shock. Basically, OPEC countries said, we're not going to give you guys oil <laughs> anymore. Good luck. Have a good one. And so what, what that led to is, you know, more money competing for the same or the same amount of money competing for less of a good and, uh, or service, right? And when there's the same amount of money or more, you know, more money competing for that, right? You have everybody kind of running around, and the price of oil goes up, supply and demand. the The other factor in the 1970s is uh, early in the 1970s, Richard Nixon had deliberately inflationary policies because he wanted to win re-election. And so they, they printed a lot more money and, and was trying to inflate his way to fuller employment. And, and that led to some problems. Well, he, he's the one that uh, first removed himself from the gold standard as well. Uh, so for a long time, we were linked to the price of gold uh, as far as our dollar. And uh, Nixon was one of the first sort of weak dollar presidents that we had. Uh, so he believed in a very, very, uh, you know, in a weak currency. And it, it's not necessarily related to whether somebody's a Republican or Democrat, whether they pursue a weak dollar policy. It oftentimes depends on uh, where they came from as far as their economic background or their business background. So, for example, um, 
Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton both believed in a stronger dollar. Both of them had, I just read comments over the weekend that they had both made uh, in relation to a stronger dollar. So usually that's less inflationary. And the weaker dollar presidents that we've seen uh, most recently, because obviously Nixon was one, um, and I think Carter was seen as one as well, but uh, uh, George W. Bush was a weak dollar president. And what happens usually in those weak dollar situations is that we see pockets of inflation and a lot related to oil. And so George W. Bush being an old oil man, uh, they always like higher oil prices. And so uh, he believes more in, in a weak dollar policy. Obama was, you know, I would say, and I don't know if history is still to be written on whether Obama was a weak dollar, strong dollar, but he got a strong dollar out of the financial crisis because it was such an odd situation. So I don't think he expressly said that he believed in a strong dollar, um, but he got kind of strong dollar policy. Well, well and, and, you know, and, and what happens, and, and it's, you know, partially, the, you know, strong dollar, weak dollar, a lot of it depends on everything else going around out in the world, right? Uh, you know, part of the reason George H.W. Bush had, we had a weak dollar, uh, was the, the Eurozone was, was chugging ahead. Asia was, was growing exponentially. And generally what you also see is markets try to find an equilibrium between, between products. Um, you know, eventually, uh, if, you know, the dollar remains strong against the euro, people are going to go and they're going to say, hey, I can buy a BMW for the same price as, uh, you know, a, a, a lower-end Dodge, right? And dollars are going to start flowing back to Europe, and that's going to balance out. So, you know, so factors about how much currency you're putting out there, how you're responding, interest rates also relate to that, and mm -hmm. comparative interest rates, right? So, you know, the way you can have a strong, stronger or weaker dollar is how you set your interest rates relative to the, to the rest of the world. There are also sort of two factors that go in, and one of them is how quick money is moving around in the system. And that's why what we saw in 2008, 2009 was so scary is no matter how much money we were printing, money was not moving around the system very quickly. It's um, called M2. Yeah. The velocity of money. Yeah. Which and now is the big thing. M2 is increasing at a very rapid rate, very much unlike what we saw in 2008, 2009. And when we see that, all of a sudden, the hairs on the back of our neck kind of go up a little bit going, hmm, is this an inflationary event going on behind the scenes? We're mm -hmm. also seeing, I also uh, read that there's this sort of, uh, I'm not going to say it right exactly, but there's a, a look at all the different stories that are being told in the news media, things like that. And if you look at consensus, more articles have been started to be written about inflation in the last six months or so, even before the COVID thing. So we were starting to see inflation is starting to enter the picture uh, as far as a topic. And and so, and this is kind of interesting uh, because, you know, the, look, first of all, there are certain people who every time uh, we need to do Keynesian deficit spending, come out of the woodwork and, and cry and, and hem and haw about inflation. Um, they were very, very strong in 2008, 2009. We never really saw that inflation. They're coming out again now. Oh, my gosh. You know, you're sending checks to people. We're going to see huge. And, and there are a couple of problems. You know, one of the reasons those, those voices come out is because, uh, um, you know, unlike standard classical Keynesian economy, which says, hey, 
when the economy is booming, you should probably aim for budget surpluses. A lot of the time in the United States, that doesn't happen, right? We're not building up those surpluses when we're seeing a booming economy. The other is, you know, they look at the, they, they race back well, you know, and they look at ratios of debt to, to GDP and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, this and that, and, and, you know, in the, the future entitlements crisis and all of this, I, I think in a lot of cases, those, they're, they're using inflation as the cudgel. Um, as as the hammer to get through their preferred uh, policies uh, rather than being earnestly uh, concerned about inflation. I think it's a bad faith sort of argument. I think it's, oh my gosh, we're, we're going to have inflation. We need to, you know, kick all of these poor people off of welfare. Um, sorry, I, I, that was a cartoonish, <laughs> you know, characteristic. Uh, but this I, is Keith's opinion for the yeah, record. But yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, you're talking I think, to a guy that isn't much of a Keynesian himself, so we can keep going. For that. But but I think you know uh, uh, I do share your concern because I think modern monetary theory has come out of a world where we've never seen inflation, right? And so these economists are like, oh, we'll never see. And, and so on things like monetary policy, I'm I'm fairly, you know, conservative. Um, and, and I do think the Fed has the tools in, in its arsenal to, if we get to a point, you know, where where we're seeing inflation, to be able to start raising interest rates and, and slow things down. Um, you don't, you're, you're a little more skeptical. Uh, well, I think that when inflation ignites, it's very difficult to bring it back into balance. And then you have to go one more extreme than the other. Um, I'm a big believer after reading history that strong dollar the strong dollar is uh, very important to our economy and more not even strong versus weak but more stable you know I want to see a stable price of that I don't want it to see manipulated I don't like seeing the Fed be super interventionist where you, it goes up and goes down on interest rates and it's bouncing back and forth um, I do think that the stronger dollar policies of certain administrations lead to better economic growth over time. Uh, so, but we haven't had that much history to be able to say that definitively. That's why it's still a point that's out there. Mm -hmm. That's why a point like, or a, an argument could be made that we should go back to the gold standard. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm there yet. I don't know, you know, because then you really fix yourself. Well, but, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, the gold standard. No, there's no argument to be made. for You the hate gold. Standard. gold. Uh, no, I, is a I, gold I, hater. Anything that I, starts I, with G <laughs> and ends with D he hates. Oh, I shouldn't say it. gold. Not. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, well, you know, you never know. Uh, we, we'll run through the dictionary later and figure out all the words that start with G and end with D. Um, no, no, no. But uh, part of the problem with with gold is, you know, when you when you tie it to a currency, you're subject to and, and people are who want us to return to the gold standard or things like that. In the 19th century, we had not recessions or we had panics all the time, and. Part of the reason is if somebody just discovers a line of gold somewhere, the gold supply in the world changes, and that means your dollar is not more stable. Right. So the notion that gold somehow... Second of all, gold doesn't have any inherent value. It's, it's purely speculative, right? And so I, I think there are arguments to be made for owning commodities in, in an environment like this. You want something that's going to have tradable value. 
But people who think, you know, the end of end times are coming and they're going to hole up with their gold bars and everything's going to be fine. I mean, that's that's not realistic either. You'd be um, much better off owning ammo rather yeah, than gold. Yeah, yes. uh, ammo. Uh, maybe teach yourself how to farm. Uh, cultivate some wild asparagus, there. you know. Those are good things to do if you're prepping for the apocalypse rather than owning gold. Um, and I do think there are other commodities that I like more. You know, uh, silver is used for things. Certain precious metals are used for things. Gold is just a big block. And what I return to is Warren Buffett's long-term claim that, you know, you can get for however much all the, the gold in the world. For the same price, you can buy all the farmland in the United States. Which would you rather have? I think I'd be a terrible farmer, so maybe I'd just store the gold. But, you know, I think <laughs> I kill plants that I just look at. Well, just, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and so. that's why we started this with, with talking about the plant situation, because we have some wilting flowers already <laughs> in, the, in the front of the office. That's why Hannah has graciously agreed to help me with them. So, you know, I, I'm hopeful that she'll have a better... Uh, a greener thumb than you do, yeah. But but I think you know when you get into these you know discussions about inflation, what becomes a conversation is we're looking for stable stores of value. Mm -hmm. What are products that you know aren't going to be uh, losing their value? And we've kind of uh, ascribed to gold, and now I'm going to get into the kind of a fetish value, right? Uh, this is a grad school uh, term. It's a value that exceeds its actual use, right? Uh, and, you know, you can't... Gold is used for some things, um, but it's not like copper, right? Uh, do you remember in 2008, 2009, like uh, all, everybody, uh, their their catalytic converters were being stolen off their car because people were taking the copper from that and copper prices were really high and, right. and selling it copper, Right. Copper is used for stuff. It has an intrinsic value, right? It's a product. Gold, not so much. Gold is just shiny and yellow, and that's why people ascribe to a value. So one of the conversations I have with clients who are interested in gold, and, and look, it, it, it does serve as a good you know, hedge, especially if you're the, the sort of person who doesn't want to invest or can't invest because of your own... Uh, views and certain things like bonds that usually work inversely to to stocks, um, that that then it becomes a good tool in your toolbox. But and actually, gold is more of a. Some people think it's a big inflation hedge. It's actually a pretty lousy inflation hedge yeah, over time. That's the other um, thing about it. But I think you know what we should point out is a lot of these things. Anybody who comes in and says and guarantees inflation or whatever, chances are one they've been wrong more than they've been right over the last thirty years because they've probably been screaming about inflation for the past thirty years. Two things like you can measure M one right. You can measure how much money is out there. Measuring M two is pretty tricky. Um, you know, measuring how fast e exchanges are going through the system, fairly tricky. Measuring things like, you know, imports, exports that are going to adjust the, the strong or the weak dollar, also pretty tricky. Um, so anybody who can say to you, guarantee, you know, we're seeing, we're going to see inflation, um, be skeptical. Um, that's, I think, really the lesson. And, you know, Clint, I think you think there's more of a chance of, of inflation coming down the pike than, than I do. Um, because uh, when I look back, you know, the confluence of factors that have created inflation here and elsewhere, I mean, 
other times, you know, there's inflation because the government is literally just throwing money out of airplanes, mm -hmm. you know, um, or, you know, you look at hyperinflation places and they're just printing, you know, money because they need to pay, they don't have any money to pay the government employees that they have, right? Um, whereas the United States as a reserve currency also has certain advantages. We have lots of advantages there and that will keep our inflation from getting too far out of control. I mean, we're not going to have 10,000% a day or something like they had in Zimbabwe for a while. You know, I mean, we just don't have that risk as far as in our economy. But I mean, I do think we're going to see slightly higher than, than average inflation. Um, you know, but when we're talking about that, if we hit 4% inflation, it, everyone's, it's going to be all over the news. And when you put that in the context of other countries and other situations, it's minuscule. So it, it's all relative as well. And then the other thing people forget in their investments is this is why you have a stock portfolio, right? Because stocks will generally go up. There may be a slight lag, but will go up with inflation, right? If we're seeing 4% inflation, that means if I own Hershey's, the price of a Hershey bar probably is increased by 4%. You know, their their you know dollar profits, if you will, will increase by four percent. Their stock will correspondingly increase by you know the amount of of inflation, and so you know you end up getting a hedge by owning stocks against inflation in your portfolio. Right, and the other alternatives are to own cash, which would be probably foolhardy if in a high inflationary environment uh, and owning physical real estate commodities. Um, but yeah, in many cases, equities is the better long-term play as far as that's what history would say. So, all right. Well, thank you all for joining us for another episode of Give Me Some Truth. We hope that this was enlightening for you. And if you have any uh, comments or questions for us, don't hesitate to send them along. services are offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the states of Wisconsin and Texas. Clint Walkner, Nate Condon, Jonathan Jordan, and Mitch DeWitt are investment advisor representatives of Walkner Condon. Guests on the podcast are not registered, and their participation in the podcast are limited to unregistered activities and will not be providing any advice that is investment related, nor should any comments that guests make should be construed as giving investment advice. Content should not be viewed as an offer to buy or sell any securities mentioned or as legal or tax advice. You should always consult an attorney or tax professional regarding your specific legal or tax situation. Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC, is not engaged in the practice of law. Whenever you invest, you are at risk of loss of principal as the market does fluctuate. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Purchases are subject to suitability. This requires a review of an investor's objective, risk tolerance, and time horizon. Investing always involves risk and possible loss of capital. Long-term care, estate planning, insurance products, and tax advice are not offered through Walkner Condon Financial Advisors, LLC. Walkner Condon works on a best efforts basis and does not guarantee any results. Past performance does not represent future results. Please see walknercondon.com for additional disclosures.